Hello, horror fans, and welcome to the first recorded, not the first published, but the first recorded episode of 2022. If you have listened to the bumper, the little short trailer that Matt Donato and I put together, then you recognize that things have changed a little bit around the certified forgotten parts. We are no longer beholden to five or fewer reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. We have allowed for inflation. We're allowing our uh, guests to bring us reviews with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We got to change with the times. We got to stay competitive and modern. It's how we do. But we're still going to be talking to some amazing guests going forward, and we're still going to be shining a light on some movies that I promise you, you haven't seen. Donato, does that, all, does that sound right? Does that all sound true and factual to you? Yeah, I think that sounds very true and factual because it really was today's episode that had me even bring that up to you, Mr. Monagle, because I do believe very much that there are a lot of titles, hilariously just the change of five single reviews. Like we went from five critic reviews to 10 critic reviews. Like that is such a small margin. But after looking through Rotten Tomatoes and looking at some of the movies that we now have available to us for the podcast, like even that small a change still blew the door wide open. Like, it's so funny to me that it was, it seems so insignificant. And yet now it's going to be so much easier for guests to pick a movie. And, you know, we, it, it sounds silly, but the number of times a guest has come with us like this movie and said, I have something with six reviews. Can I do that? The difference between five and six. I mean, it's what happens when you arbitrarily choose parameters for a podcast. Eventually you're like, okay, maybe, maybe we can relax these a little bit. And so does the Donato rule go into effect now for 11 reviews? Because the Donato rule officially was if I was the sixth review on something, as I was often, then we would able, we were allowed to do it for the podcast. So I guess that makes my Donato rule 11 now. I think it's our little fiefdom and we can do whatever we want with it. It's our weird little kingdom. And what we would like to do today is talk about a really fun sci-fi horror movie with a really awesome guest. Donato, introductions, please. Absolutely. Uh, my guest needs no introduction. I know we say that every time, but you know this person as the managing editor of Daily Dead, and you also know this person as an author for such books as Monsters, Makeup, and Effects, as well as just being everywhere on the internet talking about horror. You know Heather Wixton very well, and now Heather, please hello. Hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, be the first to kick the door open on the uh, five review rule. Yeah, you know what? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We we're going to change it eventually, but we weren't going to do the first episode for just anybody. So I'm really glad that it's you and that you're here and bringing us a cool title, which of course we'll get to in a moment. But you know, you can read episode titles on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, so you know what this is already. But Heather, as we do with all of our guests, um, you know, we really want to talk a little bit about you because I feel like, as somebody who's seen you on Twitter before, seen kind of like the the things that you're advocating. You spend a lot of time talking about other people's work in a lot of really great and interesting detail, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your work in that same amount of detail. So start us off by talking about kind of those early days of horror fandom for you. What were, what do you remember as sort of those formative memories that made you connect to the genre? You know, I mean, I think I, one, I was lucky because I, I think I'm a little bit older than you guys. So I, grew up uh, with a single mom who basically took me to everything. So like one of my very first like movie ex like memories is seeing American Werewolf in London in a theater at like age three. So I've already dated myself. So yes, I'm a, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older, uh, you know, uh, me and Halloween, we share a birthday, so to speak, uh, or at least a birthday year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, I think that was the kind of the best, time to grow up because I think parents just kind of were like, eh, watch whatever. And so like my best friend and uh, her parents were super into science fiction. 
So when we were really young, like her parents were watching movies like The Thing and Alien and like scaring the crap out of us um, because I think I saw The Thing at like age five, which I don't recommend um, because it terrified me in terms of dogs. Um, I was just absolutely petrified of all dogs um, because of that movie. So it was just kind of like I pretty much it was like most kids who grew up in the 80s. Like I would just go to video stores, find what's cool and rent it. But I will say one of the biggest things that sort of became, and I didn't even realize like how formative it was at the time, but I see it now. Um, one of my discoveries was pretty early on, I, I discovered Tyranny Isles, um, which is you know, now gotten like a Blu-ray from Scream Factory, but for years, nobody knew what that was. Um, and it's a really fun sort of compilation, you know, project where it has uh, Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen hosting all these movie clips in a movie theater. Um, it has Donald Pleasant saying werewolf in the most adorable way possible. Um, but the cover of it is like a skull and it has all these movie titles in it. And so I would take that artwork and that's how I would start finding movies. And I would like, like, oh, okay, I need to go find Suspiria. And at age eight, my best friend and I rented Suspiria. Again, do not recommend it. It's not a, not a movie I'd show a lot of eight-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that was kind of like my introduction to it. And then I think it really started to click for me. Like I think around the time of like discovering like Nightmare on Elm Street and just starting to kind of get into these franchises. I, you know, I fell in love with Freddy Farm before I fell in love with like the Friday 13th movies uh, or even the Halloween movies. But, you know, I will say, you know, for as rough shot as like a childhood you had back then, we didn't have helmets or anything like that. We just kind of did our thing. But like, I don't know that I would have, grown up the fan that I was um, without sort of having that kind of freedom. Um, but I was the weird kid who, you know, cause girls back then, like, you know, we were supposed to be super into Barbies and stuff like that. And I was the kid who liked professional wrestling and horror, which doesn't exactly make you super popular. <laughs> well, I feel like now if I've learned anything from Twitter, it's that wrestling and horror are like, you know, honey and chocolate. They just go together perfectly. And it's almost impossible to find somebody who's a really diehard fan of one without the other. So you were just, you were just ahead of your time. As well. I was, I, it was funny. Cause like, I, I kept thinking about that because even like when I started um, dating my partner, like we, cause we met in 2009 when I first moved out here and I don't even think we, we talked about it initially. Cause we met actually at a Friday 13th party, but we were on our first date and it was like, we went to a movie and then afterwards we were having drinks and he said something about wrestling. And I was like, wait, you like wrestling because like, tw like 13 years ago, nobody talked about it. So I didn't know that like, it was okay to talk about wrestling because I'd spent so many years being made fun of for my love of wrestling that I was like, wait, this is okay. This is cool. Um, and so, yeah, for me, like getting to see everybody now on, on Twitter, um, like really embracing uh, both of these things, like I, it feels like I found my people finally. Like I've just only been waiting, you know, I've been waiting decades to find them and there they are on Twitter. It's so funny because I was the wrestling fan first from much younger age when I wasn't like allowed to be the horror fan in a way uh, in my family and in, like in my household. It was just, as I always say on the podcast, like I grew up with my helmet on uh, to what you said, Heather, before. Like, you know, <laughs> I was in the generation of people who had to wear their helmet and my parents were very... Uh, rule abiding and they saw horror as a certain thing but for some reason i was allowed to watch wcw and wwf and so like i was the wrestling kid for a little while then that fell off when uh, wcw went away 
it was just WWF and they went to WWE and I was like, I'm done with this. I don't like where things are going, blah, blah, blah. And then I became the horror fan. And then all of a sudden, like the funny intersection of being like, wait, all these horror people keep talking about wrestling. Like, what have I been missing? And it was horror fans that brought me back in to like AEW, like specifically Amelia Emberwing. But like that was that funny intersection of being wrestling first. Then all of a sudden I'm the horror fan and not the wrestling fan. It's so funny to me. It's so funny to look back on. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of those things like when I was a kid, like my aunt was obsessed with Ric Flair. Um, Like she had pictures of him on her wall. Like she had pictures of her kids, like in frames, like it was ridiculous. But so I would like, if we were over there, like on a weekend or, you know, and just kind of visiting with her, like she always had like NWA and stuff like that on. And it makes me kind of sad and feel very old, Matt, that you're talking about the years when like WCW went away because that was like when I was in my twenties and I kind of got back into wrestling. So now I feel even older. Uh, But I do, I remember that whole thing. I remember I was actually... It, it was a really good time to be a wrestling fan in the early 2000s um, because one, I got to do like a really, a lot of really cool stuff. Like um, my first mania was WrestleMania 18. So I was there and I know Hogan's not a great person, but like I was there for Hogan versus rock, which was like my two generations of fandom, like colliding in one place. And I've never heard anything like that in my life. And I also got to go to like 19 and 20 and I was there when NWO came back and things like that. Cause they did that in Milwaukee and I'm originally from Chicago and I was even there when Hogan and um, the rock had their first sort of meeting because they did that uh, in Chicago. Um, and it was like the night when like the rock was in the ambulance and they NWO smashed it. It was just, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time to be a fan. Um, so yeah, I don't definitely don't feel old or anything right now, but <laughs> It wasn't my attention, I promise. <laughs> no, 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 it's totally okay. But, but I think, you know, th- I think that's what's really cool. It's like, I think both of these things, because they're sort of outlier, like, entertainments, um, I think that's why there is such an overlap. Because, you know, I think they're both sort of on the fringes where we have to kind of fight for our fandom a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why they're such, like, you know, they kind of are really compatible um, in a lot of ways. Plus, if you look at, like, some of, like, the old stuff that they did in WWF back before they became WWE. Like there's a lot of really good horror type characters. I mean, the undertaker alone is like probably one of the most, you know, one of the most iconic figures in wrestling history. And he's like a dead guy, you know? So it makes sense. Um, But yeah, I just think it's really cool that like, especially now being a fan of wrestling, like there's just so many different options because like, you know, we also follow uh, AEW. We also follow GCW, we follow AAW, New Japan, like, it's kind of exhausting, like the amount of stuff I have to consume between wrestling and like work stuff where I'm mm-hmm. like, I'll get to a night and I'll be like, wait, we don't have to watch anything. This is great. <laughs> so, but yeah, I just think it's really fun how those things, you know, I never expected them to overlap, but I'm, I am all for it. Like, I'm just, you know, it's nice to kind of be able to live free. Cause I remember when I, back when I, cause I was actually married before I moved out here. Um, and like my ex's family, like, his grandfather, he was really sweet. And I don't think he meant anything malicious, but he used to send these, like, you know, you're a redneck if like he used to like do like clippings of like newspapers and calendars and stuff. And he'd always send the wrestling ones to me because he thought it was funny. But I just was like, oh, okay. Like you tape over your, you know, you know, you're a redneck if you tape over your wedding video with a wrestling show. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Is it targeted? <laughs> so, I know. I was like, wow. Okay. Um, I, you know, but I never did tape over the wedding video with that. So I think I threw it away, but yeah, I, you know, it's just, you know, I think I've always 
just sort of gravitated to the to stuff that most people I don't think really necessarily did. But then again, when I started watching wrestling, like a lot of people weren't into it, but then like Hogan, you know, exploded in the eighties and then suddenly it became a mainstream thing, which was really cool. And then when you got to get wrestlers into movies, like forget about it. I was in heaven. I've always wondered as somebody who, who is not a, a fan of wrestling, doesn't follow it outside of a, a few years I had with the NC, what is it? NCO versus NWO revenge, the old N64 game. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wondered, there's gotta be something there between like the, the um, iconic horror killer and the, uh, wrestling icon because there's an element of pageantry there's an element of camp there's like this this permutations of of you know folding narratives and storylines where eventually it's kind of it could collapse under its own mythology but it's also great at the same point and like everything kind of bends around these iconic characters i always feel like you know when people are like oh i love I, you know i love nightmare on elm street and i love wrestling i'm like it's got to be the freddy thing we're all just chasing that freddy high yeah. inside and outside of the ring forever yeah, no, definitely. And I think too, like, you know, when I was a kid, like the, the, the bad guys in wrestling were sometimes genuinely scary. Like I remember Zeus coming in and in bless tiny Lister Jr. Like he wasn't a wrestler. He wasn't great in the ring, but he scared the crap out of me. And I know a lot of that came, like came from seeing No Holds Barred, but like his character carried over really well. And I remember when he popped up, you know, in WWF, like I was genuinely terrified. I thought he was going to kill Hulk Hogan. Um, and when you're a kid and, you know, mm-hmm. back then when you idolize somebody like that, like it's you're like, oh, like you feel like somebody's in jeopardy and you feel like you're watching like that version, like a version of a horror story, you know, where it's like they have to conquer the bad guy, you know, or be forever, you know, dealt with or I don't want to say, you know, dead because it's not like Hulk Hogan die, but, you know. Right. It, it, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I think we all, you know, I think for most of us in horror, like we all like the good people and we like good to prevail, but there's something to be said for a really great bad guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like for me, it was Kane. You know, The Undertaker obviously is go to horror wrestling intersection, but like Kane was the one that scared me. The mask, just everything about it, like having oh, no voice for a, for a little bit. Uh, but like just the imposition and seeing him, that was enough for me to be like, he's the scariest mofo in in wrestling right now that that was the one for me but i mean it also goes back to slasher killers are essentially like cutting promos half the time like like if you look at their monologues and thing like that they're basically doing what you know heroes and heels do in wrestling and i chucky wasn't on wcw like he cut a promo on wcw because that's what he can do well (laughs) like he can yell at rick steiner and be like yo like i'm with your boy scott like I'm going to kill you in the ring if I come out there. And like, it's just so hilarious to see that intersection come full circle because they are the same thing in so many aspects. Just, you know, everyone has the personality. Everyone is playing a character just the way that a slasher villain is playing a character in all these things. Yeah. If anybody could take down the Steiners, I think it is Chucky. (laughs) Oddly enough. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Well, let me skip forward a little bit then Heather and ask you a bit about the, the beginning of your writing career. Because I know, you know, in reading through your bio and looking at your prodigious amount of bylines and, and past writing you've done, that you've been doing this for a long time. And I'm kind of curious, especially, um, you know, kind of in the the earlier days of what we think of as like, I don't want to say film Twitter, but like the writing communities that have popped up over the last 20 years or so, you know, how you broke into that, how you connected to other writers during that period and and what sort of inspired you to, to turn your voice to horror. You know, I mean... 
I think I, it was because I was sort of at a point in my life when I just, I didn't feel like I had anything that was my own. Like I got married um, pretty early in my twenties and I was doing everything you were supposed to be doing. Like, you know, I had a, a steady office job, you know, I had a house and cars and we vacationed and, you know, all these things that, you know, traditionally you're told you're supposed to do, you know, when you're growing up. And, but I kept like, just feeling like something was off. And I've always, I always loved writing, but I always, but I ended up getting like typical office jobs because I was good at that stuff and I could make money and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I really always missed writing because uh, it was a passion of mine. Like I remember um, I, I was writing stories like when I was like five or six years old, um, my best friend her, at her house, they had a typewriter and regularly I was running their typewriter tape out because I was just always over there doing stuff like, you know, I was a weird kid, like they'd be out there playing and I'd be like, Oh, but I'm writing a story. I'll be out like in 20 minutes. Um, and so I missed that. I, I felt like I just didn't have that part of me. And I tried like working for like local papers in the area, um, out there, like in the Chicago suburbs and it was fine, but it's like, you can only get so excited about like covering like, Oh, they're installing new sidewalks in a subdivision. Yay. How do you make that interesting? You just, you just don't. Um, and I, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. Like, I knew I loved horror movies. I knew I loved writing, but this was like 2007. So I'm like, I don't know exactly what that means. And the idea of writing about this stuff professionally seemed like so foreign to me. And I remember because I used to go to this convention back when I lived in Chicago, which I'm really fortunate that I actually get to go back and co-host now. Um, but I was sitting at flashback weekend and it was 2007 and Adam Green was there promoting Hatchet. And he was telling his very famous D. Snyder story, which if you watch the special features for Hatchet or even Frozen, uh, he talks about it. So it's, you know, basically D. Snyder kept inspiring him to follow his dreams for years. And he did. And then for the premiere of Hatchet, D. Snyder showed up and took him on the red carpet. And, you know, and Adam is sitting there talking. He's a guy who, like, you know, had to find a way to make a movie. He didn't have, the, you know, he was doing his shorts and things like that through the early days of Aeroscope. But, you know, Hatchet was a really big deal for him. And I remember him saying something to the effect of, like, you know, if you're passionate about something, find a way to do it. And to be really honest, and it's not like I want to, like, bag on my ex or anything, but I'm sitting there in this convention, and my marriage is already falling apart at this point. And I'm just feeling lost. I'm feeling found because I'm at a horror convention, but I'm ultimately lost, and I don't know what to do. And... I just, I knew I needed something. And just on a whim, like a week or two later, I was looking on Craigslist and I found this posting on there for like this new upcoming horror website that was looking for people to do reviews. And I was like, whatever, I'll just take a shot. Let's see what happens. And I, Fabian, who owned the site at the time, um, reached out to me. He's like, yeah, let's do this. And so I wrote my very first review um, in August of 2007, which was... I believe the invasion, uh, the Nicole Kidman, uh, Daniel Craig movie, which I don't remember really liking, but my goal is to go back and review some of the movies that I saw back in like that first year, because I'm curious if, if things have changed a little bit. Um, I don't read my writing from back then because it's awful. I did that once and I was like, Oh no. Um, I was like, that was a bad thing. Um, but yeah, so I just kind of, you know, and so I started doing that. And at the time it was one of these things where like I had a day job, um, we were kind of dealing with the fallout of, you know, once we got into like 2008, we had a bunch of like weird things happen where like we were having a house built. We had to move into this house. We still had a house because we couldn't sell it because of the real estate 
like basically the whole market collapsing. So essentially like I was for like a year and a half, I was basically working a day job. I was working part-time at super target. Um, and then I was also writing. And then I was also, I used to also do these jewelry parties on the weekends for this company called Leo Sophia. So I was like doing a lot. I don't know if you can tell, but I kind of work a lot. <laughs> if you ever see my stressed out tweets, I, I have a tendency to work too much. Um, but I was also paying for divorce, trying to pay mortgages on two houses, things like that. Um, and I was just like, I, I, something has to give. And it sort of worked out in a way that I, again, I didn't see it at the moment, but I realized my boss was doing me a favor because I'd gone to Sundance on my own dime in, 2000, in 2009. And the reason I did is because Adam had produced a movie that was playing there and I'd been covering it like a sort of for territory, which is the first site that I worked for. Um, and I was like, I wanted to see it through to completion. Like I wanted to see the movie get to play there. So I like sold a bunch of jewelry to all the ladies at my office so I could pay for my airfare and my car rental. And, you know, I basically took myself out there. I bought tickets. I, there's no way I was getting press passes or anything like that. And I just went. And when I was there, uh, that was when Steve Barton, who used to be the, um, head guy over at uh, Dread Central, he reached out to me. Actually, it was my night that I, the night that I was packing to head back to Chicago. And he was like, hey, do you want to do some stuff for us? Um, the irony being that two months earlier, I he put out a call for people to write for Dread Central. And I responded, but he never responded back to me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought it was funny, like two months later, he's like, hey, we could use some Sundance stuff if you want to do things. And I was like, oh, okay. Um but that was kind of how the, the door sort of opened for me in terms of being able to get my work on a, on, a, on a new level and being seen by people. And, you know, essentially about a month after going to Sundance, I ended up getting fired from my job, which was the first time I'd ever been let go. And so I decided to like, I'd already had a trip booked to, to LA for my birthday. Um, and I was like, well, I'm just going to throw out some resumes, see what happens. And I got a call as I was boarding my plane to come to LA from a, a school here. And they were like, Oh, you know, would you want to come in for an interview? And basically during my vacation, I ended up getting a job out here. And so I had to go home, pack everything up in like five days and move. And I think about that now and how ridiculous it is. I'm like, I would never do that again uh, because that's crazy. And so it was like, I had like five cats at the time. I left one at my mom's permanently, but I, had to bring four out like a month later and with my car and everything. And it was just, I still look at him like, what did I do that? Like, that is crazy. And I was really lucky to have friends here who like, you know, they let me crash at their place while I figured everything out. You know, I was able to have the day job, which is why I see a lot of folks who try to get down on people who have day jobs and try to write and things like that. But like, ultimately, like, that's most of us, like most of us are hustling outside of this, you know, because it isn't exactly like we're all, swimming around in our yachts, you know, or not swimming, but floating around in our yachts because we're making bank, you know, writing about some obscure horror movie that means a lot to us, but maybe, you know, isn't going to make us like, you know, $30,000 because we wrote something really cool. So to be know, fair, I, my, my hypothetical yacht would have a pool. So swimming around in our yachts would be, mm -hmm. would be an accurate statement. Yeah, I feel like that's safer because you don't know what's in the ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, I've watched Jaws enough to know that I, I mean, you know, contained water is sometimes the best water. Correct. You know, but yeah. And so, you know, and it was just trying to figure out as I went. But it was interesting because back then, like when I started, like I can't count on one hand the amount of women writers that I knew of, 
you know, there, there wasn't many, if, you know, there was myself, there was Stacey Wilson, Yovanka, um, I'm trying to think of who, oh, Stacey Ponder was another one, uh, Heidi Martinuzzi was doing some stuff at that point, um, so for me, I think the coolest thing that I've seen, you know, in the last 15 years, which I still can't believe it's been almost 15 years now, is the evolution of everything, because it did feel very insular when I started, like, you really had to kind of work to get in with people, and now it just feels really, for the most part, inviting, which is nice, like, because we're all here for the same reasons, because of the things that we love and what we love doing. Um, and so that's why I always encourage people, like, you know, don't cut people off, you know, like, if, if you're into something, and they're into something like, you know, that's reason enough to have a conversation. Like, I still remember my boss now, Jonathan, over at Daily Dead, because I, jo- I joined there in 2013. His first Comic Con, I think, was 2011, and I had just started following Daily Dead, and I saw him. I think it was the Silent Hill Two press conference, and we were sitting there and chit chatting. And he, when I started at Daily Dead, he's like, you know, I wanted to tell you this. He's like, but that was my first Comic Con, and he was like, not a single person talked to me the entire Comic Con. Like, no other journalists would even say a word to him. And he was like, you're the only person that talked to me. And I was like, what? It's like, that's crazy to me. Like, we don't, things don't need to be that way. And I think they're better now. But even, you know, just looking at like 10 years ago, I'm like, really? Like, that's how people were? So it kind of bummed me out a little bit. But I just, you know, I'll talk to anybody. So I'm going to shut up now because I've been rambling a lot. Um, but yeah, like that's sort of the, sh- the short version. Um, you know, if, I, if this was the movie Clued, you know, I'd be like, long story short. And then everybody would say too late. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just really fortunate. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm somebody who's loved writing as much as I've loved horror for most of my life. And I just feel, you know, it's stressful. There are days where I just kind of want to give up. Um, and I've come close, but I'm still grateful. Like I'm still grateful for the things I get to do for the opportunities that I have. And then I get to celebrate a genre that I love. Yeah. I think the hardest parts for me right now are the um you know you mentioned going to festivals and conventions and how things have gotten better and how like you know I, like that's where i find my most fulfillment doing this job uh I, me and monogle are both the day job critics like literally we're probably have our work emails open right now as we do <laughs> on the other screen i have i there's a there's an important email chain that popped up in the middle of the podcast so i'm sort of like i'm gonna be like oh, i gotta answer that as soon as we're done here but that's the thing though like it's that new normal because the idea of being a film critic and just getting paid a living wage to be a film critic is now a thing that like doesn't exist i think a decade ago when i started it did and every site had a dedicated film critic and all these things but between so many happenings like Either A, you are doing everything now, and like you should. If you, there is no being just a critic anymore. If you're going to be staff anywhere, you have to do everything that's imaginable in that like white unicorn position of just being a chief film critic, and that's it. Like it's not, it's not how this goes anymore. But like that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Like that's not a complaint by any means. It's just I think that if you are, <laughs> if you have a day job and you're doing this on the side, it is because you know you want to write about what you want to write about, um, horror in particular does not pay very well i'm sorry to burst a lot of bubbles out there but that doesn't mean that like you're any less of a writer or critic because you have that day job like i'm sorry my day job is very comfortable and it gives me a nice living salary and it lets me live in la to do all the things that i want it's like if you're gonna turn your nose down at that like that's as just a big an issue as turning down your nose at any journalist you meet for the first time in at a festival and like my first few fan or like my first fantastic in south by were largely just me alone so like, I totally understand that. Like, you know, when I started 
I think like 2014 was like the first festival runs for me. I didn't know anyone out there in the in the big old world outside my little bubble. So it's like you got to go out. You got to just go find your way. And, you know, as you were talking about, Heather, it's like you had to do it yourself. Like all these people ask, like, well, how do why do you get to go to festivals? It's like, what do you mean? Why do I get to go? Like, I I, I, I kind of just go <laughs> like, like, you know, it's like one of those things where like, obviously you have to get the press uh, credentials and things of that nature. But I don't know. It, it, it's about putting yourself out there. And if you don't put yourself out there, you're not going to get as much back. Yeah, I will say, though, for many, many years of me starting in this industry, like, I didn't make anything. Yeah. Like, I'll be perfectly honest. Like, I was at Dread Central. And this was during the days where Dread was making, like, money. Yep. Um, I didn't get paid. <laughs> I should have been getting paid, but I didn't. Um, but that was a little, little uh, oversight on my part that I should have maybe bought for myself. But I was just grateful to get my foot in the door and be able to do something like that. And it did open a lot of doors for me. Like, you know, I mean, now it's like I've written stuff for Fangoria, which I never in a million years would have imagined. Um, like I still remember crying the first issue of Fangoria and I saw like my name in there and I was like, Oh my God, eight year old me would be freaking the hell out right now because like, what is this? You know? So it's, I know a lot of people, you know, the whole, you know, don't want to get paid an experience. And like, I get it. But also at the same time, like if you're just starting out, sometimes you do have to pay your dues and it sucks. And you'll know where the line is for yourself, where you're like, okay, this is getting me experience. And then you'll know where the line is where you're like, okay, this is when I need to start getting money for what I'm doing. And again, I don't mean to like discount people because it's like, yes, everybody should be getting paid. But also like most of the sites out there, like, you know, we're all, we're all doing our best because especially with after the pandemic, like things just dried up so completely for so many sites, you know, it's, it's been rough, but I think, you know, I, I think ultimately if nothing else, what's intrigued me about the pandemic is just being able to see people evolve a bit. Um, and I think podcasts too have really been a crucial part of that because one, it's given people new opportunities, but also I think it gives people an escape, the listeners, you know what I mean? Where they maybe, wouldn't have had time or wouldn't have thought like, you know, to sit and listen to people chat for an hour about a, a silly movie or something like that. But now they're like, Oh, that's like my one hour of escape that, you know, for, for any given day. Um, so I was just also, by the way, my, I was like trying to think of what 2014 South by Southwest was. And I don't think I was actually at that one, which just because I, that was the one year I didn't go. Cause it was my first year at daily dead. And I was like still getting set up there. And I was like, I don't think, I was like, I don't think I was at that one. So I'm sorry. If I was there and I would have seen you, Matt, I would have I would have chatted with you. <laughs> I appreciate it. We met later. We did meet, I think it was like maybe even a year or two later. It was not long after. <laughs> I think the first time we met was, I think it was at the Hardcore Henry Junket, I want to say. Possibly could have been it. Yeah. Yeah, it was like sitting in that like weird little house. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the, the Fonz PR house at the time or something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That was like so different. You know, I always like, you know, having different experiences. And then I remember like really getting to chat with you when we did, they did the uh, free fire. Oh, right. The free fire paintball where uh, we shot Sheralto. (laughs) Yes. And they gave us like tons of like clothes from Goodwill, which uh, I still have because there are some cool t-shirts. Oh, I still have mine too. I have it sitting right (laughs) over next to me like right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, we could, I mean, Donato and I have talked about the, the writer path and, and the professional versus, you know, 
um, the people that are doing it for the passion and what that means for you and where you should draw that line. I don't think there's a lot of copywriters that are like, Oh, I just, you know, I can't believe that I get paid to write copy. It's like, you should probably have a little bit more of that mindset too. As writers, we could all stand to, to maybe recognize the business value of our trade. It's complicated. It's individual. It really is going to vary depending on what else you have going on, how much time and devotion you kind of allow yourself to give to the industry. But I, it's for every guest that we've had on here for no matter their experience level, no matter the amount of time that they've been doing this, there isn't really like an easy answer other than maybe, you know, have been born in the 1950s and, and <laughs> be able to work through the seventies and eighties, I guess that's the closest thing we got. Yeah. Or get like one of those cushy, like staff jobs at the, like a, a major newspaper and been there for like 35 years or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. The best way to be a professional film critic is to have already been a professional film critic. There we go. <laughs> yeah. There is no uh, future path forward for what used to be. And I think we'll, we'll all be better to realize that, uh, you know, it's a business and it's a creative industry, but it's both. Yeah. And you can't, you can't just think it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely. Well, okay. So that was, that, that got to a little bit of a, a heavy place. Yeah, dark. Um, sorry, so had, I apologize. <laughs> no, it wasn't just you. Donato, I think did most of the heavy lifting on, yeah, the, on the dark front. Just, just that call me the Debbie Downer of podcasting. Sorry. Wow, wow. <laughs> no, you, this is not the first time we've gotten here in an episode. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a short little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Alien Raiders. And then all the cynicism and all of this pessimism is going to drain right the fuck away. So join us. We'll be back in just a second with Alien Raiders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the middle section, the bumper section of Certified Forgotten. You are about to hear some of our patrons make us answer questions, promote their work. I actually don't know what we have in store for us today. So we're lucky enough to have an incredible community of people who support the writers for CertifiedForgotten.com and support this podcast. And like to take time out of every episode to give them a little bit of a voice on the show. So Matt and Otto, who are we hearing from today? The very first we are hearing from is Mr. Ian. And he asks, what is one of your favorite horror watches from last year? It does not have to be something that was released last year, just something maybe you mm. watched and you want to share with everyone. So Mr. Monoglo, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, that's a good question because I did, because I had sort of a month of horror. I, I got halfway through October where I watched a new to me horror movie every day. Um, maybe the best movie that I watched, new or otherwise, in October or in 2021 was The Invitation. That's not the one that I'm going to shout out. The one I want to shout out is My Bloody Valentine. 19, not the remake, although if you want opinions on the remake, I happen to know a guy who does a column on classic horror remakes. But yeah, I am, I'm not really a slasher guy. It's not a genre that I've ever gotten behind. I've seen a lot of them and I appreciate the craft. And there's some ones that I have fun with. I like The Burning. I like a bunch of other ones too. But there's just something about a good, like, wintry, rural type slasher movie that really hits home for me and my bloody valentine makes you care about the characters gives you stakes in the town has a cool as fuck costume design for the killer really incredible production design um, when they're underground in the mines it's just it is a, a really great movie on all levels and watching it for the first time in 2021 
I, I don't understand. Like, I know that this is considered a classic, but I don't understand how this is like holy trinity of horror, that this isn't on the same level with a Friday the 13th or a Halloween, because it it is just, it's incredible craftsmanship. Agreed. I, I adore uh, the original. I, I adore both of them. Uh, Mr. Monogle was alluding to me, the uh, writer of <laughs> Revenge of the Remakes on Blade Disgusting. And I definitely went backwards because I saw the remake first and then I saw the original and both are so high on my rankings on slasher lists, remakes, whatever you want to talk about. I would say that My Bloody Valentine is probably the strongest original to remake. Like, not by much. There's so many more movies we can talk Mm -hmm. about there, but I do think at this point in my life I can say My Bloodies are like the the number one original remake combo. Very nice. Do you have a good good answer for this one? Because I'm curious what you're going to say. I have an answer for mine, and it's not my favorite horror movie of last year, but it's the one I want to highlight the most because I think it's the one that needs the biggest push, and that is The Medium. It's on Shudder. I have talked about it everywhere I possibly can at this point. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you've heard me talk about it on our videos. If you read my writing, I have included it on every listicle I can, and I do that because it is a two-hour-plus-long Thai mockumentary about documentarians who go into a very traditional village in Thailand and... it. It is slow at the beginning. The first hour about is just building the tension and the doing the groundwork with the shaman. And you feel so close to the work that she is doing and you feel a connection with the shaman, you know, kind of circle she's running in. And then it opens the door later for all the craziness that happens. And it's definitely a slow burn for so long. You have to stick with it. It's subtitled. I think it's one of those movies on Shudder that half of the Shudder users are going to turn off after 20 minutes because they're going to go, oh, well, this isn't scary. But that's because you have to get like an hour, 10 minutes in. And then you get the closest thing we're ever going to get to Safe Haven from VHS 2, in my opinion. And that is my selling point. If you stick Mm. with it. You're going to get some real, real good found footage horror scares with night vision cameras and a possessed person. You're going to get some insane possession. I, I don't even want to say what happens later with the possession, but there's a lot of people. The cameras keep rolling. It gets gory. It gets gross. And it also gets really fucking scary. So I, re- I stick with the medium. Trust me. Get through it. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. That's high praise, too, because pound for pound, Safe Haven is maybe one of the best things the horror genre has ever produced cult horror it's just really really good cult horror and that ah, mix that with possession mix that with theological horror and that is the medium that is what it is and i want more people to see it all right go check it out it's on shutter and then for number two i think we're gonna do our uh, amelia shout out and do a little pickety witch talk because do you subscribe to the newsletter pickety witch do you follow amelia do you want to hear about Many things we should all be caring about in the political sphere and social activism, but delivered in a way that has funny gifts. You know, maybe it's Loki, maybe it's Marvel, who knows? Uh, that is what the Pickety Witch is, and I highly, highly encourage you to subscribe because I I, I needed it for me, myself, uh, and it keeps me more informed and keeps me informed in a way that I can definitely, you know, catch on to a little quicker. So that, that is, uh, yeah, follow. Go find it. Yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully by now, y'all know that, that uh, Amelia's a friend, personal friend of ours, that um, we think extremely highly of her as both a writer and an editor. But I think one of the best things the Pickety Witch does is it, it gives you a place to start. And that's kind of an underrated quality, especially if you're on social media, where everything feels like the end, that we're living in the end times, that everything is impossible, that nothing matters. It's kind of easy to let that nihilism creep in. And Amelia does a really good job of not only teasing out those connections to popular culture, but also giving you a place to start, giving you the small lift, giving you the easy lift 
not making you feel like the options are either to individually overthrow the Supreme Court or do nothing. There's a vast middle grounds of opportunities to get engaged, and she's going to let you know what those are. And that's it. Those are our two bumpers. We thank everyone who is part of our Patreon, and we thank everyone who gives us these little talking points every mid-episode. Appreciate y'all. Back to the show. Hey, welcome back. So today we're going to be talking about Alien Raiders. Alien Raiders is a 2008 horror sci-fi film. It is the debut feature of director Ben Rock, who horror trivia enthusiasts may recognize as the production designer of the Blair Witch Project or the guy who created those signature stick figures. In Alien Raiders, Rock turns his hand to sci-fi horror, pitting the residents of the small town of Buck Lake, Arizona against a violent group of mercenaries whose goals may or may not be as evil as they seem. The entire film was shot in a defunct supermarket, and Alien Raiders is part The Thing and part X-Files, but entirely a bunch of really fun late 2000s action sci-fi goodness. So, as we always do on our episodes, Heather, first question for you is you knew that you were going to you knew that you were ushering in this brand new era of certified forgotten because we were going to let you go above 5. <laughs> what made this the movie that you were like this is it, I'm shooting my shot, I want to talk about this one? Uh, well, I think the biggest reason is because more people should be talking about Alien Raiders. Um, it's funny because you mentioned the thing. And I also, you know, for me, especially revisiting it, because it, it's been a while since I've, I've watched it. Um, and I popped in my my raw feed blue, uh, DVD of it. And I forgot, like, how Carpenter-esque it feels, because there's like, even parts of it that feel very Assault on Precinct 13. And then I thought about the title, which is, like, kind of silly. And I was like, they should have called it, like, Assault on Isle 13. Ooh. Like, that would have been perfect. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it was, again, this was a movie that I, I covered really early in my career and I, you know, I even got to interview Ben for it. And it was funny because you talk about like the fact that most people know him as, um, the Blair Witch guy, which for me, I actually recognized him because his wife had a short film at Sundance in 2009. And I remember him in the audience and when we, when I saw when I got like the press kit for it and it had his picture, I was like, oh my God, that's Alicia's husband. So it's mm. funny because most people like in these situations will be like, oh, it's somebody, so-and-so's wife. Where in this one, I was like, oh, it's her husband. Um, and then it was like, and then the Blair Witch thing happened, like came together and I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I, for me, it was like, it was a movie that like they sent to me, you know, asked me if I wanted to cover it. And I was like, yeah, this sounds great. And I still and I still have to this day, when they sent out the DVD for it, they also sent out a container with a severed finger. And oh, nice. they sent it to my work, which was really fun because I worked at a very conservative Christian company. And I think they were a little weird. They were weirded out by me sometimes. Like I actually had to take down my Sawtoo postcard I had hanging up in my cubicle because it was too graphic. Um, and then I get a severed finger in the mail and they were like, what is going on? Um, but I, you know, it was one of those, like I saw it and I was like, this is really good. Like it's, you know, it's definitely like a low budget movie, but what I think for me, there's a lot of movies that sort of come out where they're low budget, high ambition. And I think this one really gets that right in terms of it knows its limitations and it doesn't feel sort of held back by them, but then where it needs to go big, it delivers that. And it's just really fun. Like I, you know, I sit there and I think about a lot of the movies that were coming out at that time 
and it doesn't feel like anything else that I was seeing, you know, in 2000s, between like 2007 and 2009. Uh, and Ben Rock just rules. Like he's a really great guy and we're still friends to this day, which is, you know, pretty awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I'm, I'm glad you brought up the title so that I didn't have to, because, you know, these things are often not ultimately um, things that, you, that a creative might get to control, the title of the film. It sells a very different bill of goods, I think, than this movie ultimately ends up being. Uh, I think this movie also suffers from terrible, like, thumbnail syndrome, which a lot of movies suffer from, which is that the the cover art, the box art on this, or at least what shows up on each of the streaming platforms, you might look at it, has very, very little incentive to make you watch the thing. But what I was sort of surprised by is I, I read an interview with Rock, and he said that the, the budget of the film was about $2.2 million, which is more than I was expecting, but not in relationship to the quality of what I saw on the screen, it is a very polished, very good looking feature. And there are a lot of films that we've watched that have a lot more money that, that feel less competent on the screen. I mean, I could spend an entire podcast probably talking about just like the set dressing of the supermarket. There's a lot of love and a lot of detail that, that went into this. And sometimes you say that, and it's a way of saying something nice about a movie. You might not have anything else to say good about but in this case, it's sort of like it's those touches of world building and authenticity, I think, that make it fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, too, you know, again, it's it's one of those where it's a one location movie, which should feel smaller, but it doesn't. Uh, and for me, it was as soon as I watched it, I was like, wow, this would pair really well with Black Friday that just came out um, a couple months ago because they have very similar ideas, um, but very different execution. And I think to me, like, it's just, it's one of those movies where it wears its influences on its sleeve. And I will say the other hook for me going into this too, is because I was a huge 24 fan. So the fact that Carlos Bernard was in this, I was like, Tony Almeida. Yes. Okay. Uh, Tony Almeida and aliens. I, you know, I'm in. Um, and, and I was really surprised because it, again, it's one of those movies, like one, it was sort of interesting to watch a movie that was made how many years ago and like the characters come in wearing face face masks and like everything. Now I'm just yeah. like, Oh my God, when I watch things, I'm like, why doesn't somebody have a mask on? And I was like, Oh look, they were doing it back then. And it just, it moves at a clip. Like it doesn't waste a single frame. Like the, it doesn't sit down to like rest on its laurels. It's like, we're going from point A to point B to point C and we're not going to like, you know, 80, this, it's a really tight 85 minutes. And I think from start to finish, it's just, it's also kind of like a mystery too, because you're trying to figure out like who the king is and, you know, and ultimately mm -hmm. you kind of get the stinger at the end where you're like, oh, you know, the, what we thought was the king wasn't and, you know, what's going to happen next. I actually kind of wish we would have had a sequel to it, um, but I don't know, you know, exactly how the movie had done for Warner Brothers raw feed back then. But I will say I, as much as I love my DVD, I, I really could use a Blu-ray of this because mm. there was a lot that felt really dark. And I don't know if it's just because my TV also is kind of older and where I was watching it, but I was like, wow, like this could, this could use a nice overhaul. I'd love to see a lot of 2000 movies kind of get some respect. I know we've done like eighties yeah. and nineties and stuff, but I think there's a lot of movies from the two thousands that need to get a little, need a little bit of an upgrade. Well, I, I like that you brought up Carlos Bernard too, because I think one of the things that instantly is, is kind of fun about this is it's sort of like a, uh, you know, uh, that guy of 2000s television. Right, because you have Matthew St. Patrick, um, who was in Six Feet Under. You have Rockman Dunbar, who was in pretty much everything. Courtney Ford, who's been in a bunch of different television shows as well. So while watching it, it it's you know we the way that we look at movies 
and think, oh, like it's got, you know, all of those guys in it. It's got all of like the Lance Henriksons or whoever your like that guy actor is. I kind of feel like this is that for the beginning days of prestige television, because as it was going, I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that guy. And everybody who kind of had a career in television that was worth noting, but probably nobody that quite bubbled up to the point of doing like a lot of film work. It's always fun when you get to see those people get an opportunity to show their stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. And I will say too, like even um, Jeffrey Lycan, I th- I hopefully I'm saying that right. But I remember he was in, oh, it was Joan of Arcadia. He was in that for like a couple, like a bunch of episodes, which I didn't watch, but my mom watched. And so at that time, like I was spending a lot of time at her place because it was like, there was something going on in like her health and stuff. So I was kind of over there a bunch. And I remember, him, I was like, I kind of remember this kid. Um, but I also think he was on like a, he might've been like a Disney show or a Nickelodeon show too, but he's really good in this. Um, and he sort of becomes like the emotional anchor, which is interesting because you have such big actors in this, that this kid kind of comes in and sort of steals, steals the show from them in a way. Well, I think that's the, the comparison point to other titles that might try this same brand of concept and, uh, you know. I think where they would fault is with the cast because on the surface, again, it's called alien Raiders. You've said that is a pretty standard title and get you hooked that it's sci-fi action in some way. And again, in a typical indie of that nature, the acting might go second place to the practical effects, or maybe if they're not practical, whatever effects are available. And the scene where there's a little bit of gore, like that's probably going to be the standout in a film like that in any normal standard uh, scenario that, us critics might like encounter but alien raiders you know i'm sitting there going okay maybe these aren't the most well-known actors Uh, maybe they didn't go on to do things and like maybe it would have done a little better with like even like a kevin durand type of action hero going on here and like doing some of the roles but there's not many performances or any that i can really point to that like quote-unquote struggle like i'm watching a film that is whether we want to say it's competent just like visually and as Monwell was talking about how the supermarket looked and all the detail that goes in there. I think the acting is just a stellar in the sense that it's pretty competent straight across the board. Like everyone's doing their jobs exactly as they have to. Like the action scenes have a little bit of intensity for what they can pull off. Uh, the interrogation sequences where you have the quote unquote invaders, as we'll call them, or the criminals as they're presented at the beginning of the film basically reveal themselves to just be hunting aliens and making sure the supermarket workers aren't infected like everyone's playing their parts pretty damn well. So like it is just one of those really good scenarios where everything is working in functionality. Like it's all just working in the same cycle and you just sit there going like, you know, I've seen a lot of indies and like they they don't all go as clean as this one. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think too, like, again, what, what really makes it sort of stand out is that it is a great character piece on top of it. Um, And it also kind of lends into sort of what was the trend at that time where it was sort of like, the the handheld footage aspects of it as well um which were you weren't seeing as much at that time but like they i don't think they knew like they were like on the cusp of like the paranormal activity wave and things like that um but i think that sort of lends like a different feeling to it than again like a lot of movies you know that i was seeing at that point and to me like i you know again it's i hadn't watched the movie in like well over 10 years at this point um and i just for me I was really surprised at like how sometimes you watch stuff from the 2000s and you kind of feel like they're of that time a little bit. Um, But I feel like this is a movie you could put out now 
and it works just as well. Like there's nothing about it that feels aged. Um, you know, I mean, maybe the flip phones a little bit and paying with cash at a grocery store, but like, ultimately, like there's nothing about this movie that specifically screams, Hey, I'm from the two thousands. And I, again, I think about a lot of movies that were coming out at that time and I'm like, wow, this one, you know, Ben put a lot into it. I think, you know, it's a testament too to the crew that he was working with that they could make the most out of that location. Um, I, I kind of wish some of the scenes were lit a little bit more only because you lose a little bit of the effects. And I've, mm. you know, as I've been doing, you know, stuff with the make, like working with people or talking to people and makeup effects, um, lighting is everything. Um, so I think if there's only one thing that I'd like sort of be like, oh, this could have been a little stronger. It's like they should have lit those effects just a little bit more because they're like you look at the pictures. I think there's some on IMDb. They're freaking amazing. Um, and if you even watch the behind the scenes on the DVD, like it's some phenomenal work um, that I think gets a little lost in the shadows. Yeah, it's the it's the shadows for me a little bit, as you were saying, because it's definitely there. I watched it. I rewatched it today for the second time. The first time I watched it, I did a <laughs> I ranked, I think it was 85 or close to 100 Christmas horror films for Slash Film. And this was one of the ones was, that was a new discovery to me. And the Christmas horror aspects are, are their ties. They're little ties that really aren't, you know, you're not going to get the killer Santa, things of that nature. But it's still there. So it made my list. And I just, again, it's I'm watching. on December 20th. Just They say at the very it beginning, true. it's December 20th. So it, yeah. it definitely counts. So it counts. And I at- forgot <laughs> that it was Christmas horror. So now I'm like, yes, I have something that I could, I could go back to every december so that's exciting but like so i watched this specifically next to a lot of really shitty christmas horror films because there aren't a lot of ones that (laughs) stand out as being primo quality and so the first time i watched it it's it's compared against these other films and number one it just like blew them out of the water so i already had pretty high you know i had a high uh thought process about it because man like it just played so much better and then i went to rewatch it today i watched it on amazon prime and whatever cut they had it's pretty clean, but then I looked at the IMDb, just as you said, Heather, and I was like pulling up clips for a, or sorry, like little pictures for a tweet. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, these pictures on IMDb are crisp and they show you the practical mm-hmm. effects and everything in pretty good detail. Um, so like that did lack a little bit, but in the same respect, while the shadows are so heavy, um, I, the cinematography just is a little sh- shaky cam too much when it goes to action. A- again, yeah. the action sequences are pretty, minimal i guess we'll call them but there are some times where uh soldiers have to fight the king and how that goes down is like to to kind of hide the fact that the king is really just throwing people around and they're like just flying great lengths into a supermarket shelf the camera's like freaking out the camera's like shaking everywhere and it's very of the 2000s it's very of the action cinematography that we would see in something like crank or shoot 'em up or any of those films at the time but it's just the darkness plus that makes it a tiny bit hard. So like those are the two things that stand out to me that like quote unquote would be a struggle for some. But even at that, there's so much else to appreciate elsewhere. Like the practical effects that you do see, they're great. They're, they're great. And not only that, but the film's greatest trick is it is an alien film that really doesn't feature a lot of the aliens. Mm-hmm. And like the best do, it doesn't have to because you're distracted by other elements and you actually get tricked into like thinking that you've actually seen these aliens and these invaders so many times when really it's just kind of the end. Yeah, they're definitely. And I, it's funny because once I finished, I, I looked up the effects guy cause that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized it's this guy, Mike Michaels, um, who I briefly chatted with, uh, when no one lives comes out, came out. 
um, because I was so blown away by the human body bag gag in that movie where I was like, I went to the publicist like, I need to talk to this guy because that was amazing. Um, and so I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is the same guy. Um, and he's worked on like everything. Like he's probably, he has it like a well over 200, like I think it's close to 250 in terms of just effects Damn. credits. Uh, and he's been working in the industry since the 80s. Um, but again, it's like one of those, like you look at the IMDb pictures and you're like, holy crap. And again, it's not a huge budget movie. And I and I worked in an effects house, so I know what those budgets come in at. And, you know, it's not cheap. The stuff that they were doing was not cheap. And especially when you have to, like, rig things and things like that. Like, you know, the, the, the fact that they were able to do what they were able to do with this movie at that budgetary level is mind-blowing still. Yeah, the... Um, the thing that kind of stands out to me a little bit, right. Is that like, we're talking about Donato, you're kind of talking about the film um, within the era, but I think that contextual knowledge is important, right? Because like by modern day standards, it feels very of a piece with a lot of, you know, mid to later two thousands kind of stuff. But if you, if you go back and you see just how, you know, chaotic and how, you know, we can't afford to show anything. So we'll show nothing. Those films were, uh, it really sets it apart a, a, th- a bit, I think. And, and it that kind of like within the context of the period that it came out, it really stands out as a different type of horror film. Yeah, I think especially, you know, in the wake of, you know, movies like Hostel and, you know, sort of a lot of the gore movies, people like to say, you know, torture porn. I hate that terminology with every fiber of my being. So I refuse to acknowledge that it's a real thing. And I'm sorry, but I just, I, I don't think that's a real thing. Like, there was just extreme violence. It was just like America's reaction to French extremism that was coming out like in the early 2000s. So for me, it's interesting because everybody was kept pushing things and pushing things. You see it in the Grindhouse movies, you see it in Devil's Rejects and in things like that. In this movie where it has some really amazing effects, but ultimately, like you said, like the, the effects, you're not really showing up to watch people get slaughtered. Like this ends up being, you know, basically sort of this back and forth between all these different characters in terms of who's, you know, who's at the grocery store, these people who come into the grocery store, what is their purpose? How are these characters going to coexist? What's going to happen? Is there going to be, you know, this onslaught of violence? You know, what, what ultimately is the end goal or the, you know, where is this all going to head for, you know, their respective groups and things like that. And I think to me, that's, what I love about it so much is that it could have been like this crazy all out alien movie. It's, you know, alien Raiders is its title. Um, But I think it becomes so much more. And I think that's to me why I love it as much as I do, because it's got all that cool stuff, but I'm there. I get hooked into all the human stuff. And that's really tough to do sometimes in sci-fi. And you mentioned that too, uh, Matt, Matt D. I was like, wait, we got double Matt. Um, (laughs) You know, that some of the best sci-fi movies, you know, the things that draw you in the most to them are the human characters. And to me, again, when I think about, like, what was happening back then, like, this feels so understated as to where horror was, you know, in the late 2000s. Um, that, again, it was just one of those, like, when I was going through all my, you know, all these different movies and trying to figure out, like, what I want to do, it was like, this is a movie I feel like more fans, like, if social media was more prevalent in the late 2000s, I think this would have been like on the list of so many people at that time, because I think it is a really clever way of playing on tropes and things that we've seen before, but ultimately finding a new way to do them. 
Yeah, it's the the VOD stigma. So was this direct to VOD? Actually, I, I should ask that. I'm pretty sure. I know. Um, I know that it won awards at Shriekfest. Um, right. So it did like it played there. Um, but I think because of the success at Shriekfest, I think Warner picked it up for their raw feed. Which I'm trying to think because also I know the effects guy worked on Otis, which I think might have been another raw feed movie as well. Um, which is also sort of an underappreciated. It's a little, it's not my favorite, but it's got some decent stuff in there. Um, but yeah, I think it went straight to Warner's home home video label. At yeah, the time. And, and, and at the time, you know, as the one thing we always talk about in this podcast often because we're doing films from the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and the stigma of VOD and what that meant uh, for movies that came out then that weren't discovered. And that goes along with like social media would have picked this up. I agree with that. They would have, ran with it and even just tweeting about it like it already people have been coming to my single tweet to be like oh my god like i, I missed this one like oh, i loved it like stuff like that none of that existed when it came out and nobody wanted to really dive into vod uh, titles because they thought well you can't go to a theater so why, why would it be good and like it just stinks for a movie like this because it would have made the list it would have made the listicles it would have done all that stuff if it had just you know had that theatrical push but but it doesn't. And so like now we're talking about it <laughs> like that. Like that's that's the hard part about these films. But it, it is hitting higher than some of the films we've talked about on this podcast, even. And that cleanliness is such an important aspect of it. Like it is just a, a very competent, talented filmmaker saying, all right, I've got this much money to get the job done and I'm going to get a job, the job done as well as I can. And like they did. And that doesn't always happen. And like, it's weird to say that. But like, again, we've seen so many indie features and the ones that get it right always have the human characters right and always have those relationships down because that's what's driving the film, even if it is a gore film, even if it is an alien film. And the ones that kind of don't hook us and the ones that we don't talk about are the films that unfortunately would just focus on the the thumb cutting off scene in Alien Raiders or the very end or anything that like shows an alien real quick. And it's like, all right, all the characters don't matter outside of that. Like we have characters we care about and that, that doesn't happen all the time in horror. Yeah. I will say too, like when I was doing research into this and things like that, like it made me realize like, you know, for as much as people sort of overlooked non-theatrical horror at that time, like honestly, that's where some of the best stuff was happening. Um, because like you had movies like behind the mask, yep. um, you had movies like Jack Brooks, monster slayer, uh, which were sort of two of my favorites of that time. And, you know, Anchor Bay was doing the Dark Lord's work at that time because they were putting out a ton of stuff. And again, Warner Brother had their raw feed. You had Dimension Extreme. Like, you, like, honestly, like, sure, I enjoyed whenever horror movies hit theaters, but ultimately, like, my favorite movies that came out of that specific time period, most of them never played a theater. Or if they did, it was like a special screening here or there. Um so that's why I always tell people like these days when like movies go straight to VOD and things like that, like don't let that deter you from checking a movie out. That's not an indication of quality. Um, Cause for me, it never was, but I know there's the tendency of like, well, if it's good enough, you know, if it's a good enough movie, it should be playing on a big screen. But you know, also the last few years have sort of switched that thinking a little bit. Um, but yeah, I always tell people like, you know, look for movies where you're not, you know, where you might least expect it because those are the gems that I think they sort of imprint themselves on you. Movies like this. Like it's one of those, like I, you know, I never imagined some movie with the guy from invasion. Um, that's like a meta take on serial, like serial slashers, you know, that has like Robert England basically playing Dr. Loomis 
would ultimately become one of my very favorite movies of all time. But like, you know, behind the mask is still endured for me. And again, that's 15, like we're talking 15 years now. I I will say also too, what I love um, about social media is that you're going to find people whose views on movies, you kind of tend to gravitate towards. So really pay attention to those folks who are trying to champion these movies that are bigger. Like we're all going to talk about scream 2020. We're all going to, you know, Talk about the, you know, black phone when it's out, you know, in a few months and for, you know, for good reason, because it's great. But like, pay attention to those other movies that we talk about, too, because I think ultimately that's where you're going to find these gems that are going to stick with you. Um, because, again, it's one of those like I think about a lot of horror movies that came out in, two, you know, 2008, 2009. Like, there's not a lot of movies from that time that I find super duper memorable. But what we were doing this like. Alien, like, like literally Alien Raiders and like The Revenant was another one that kind of came up on my list, but I know that has like a few extra reviews because it played some festivals. Um, so it didn't, I don't know if it quite qualified, but like, you know, you're going to find other ways to see movies. Don't just let the theatrical, you know, glossiness be your indicator of what the quality of that movie is. Plus also Tubi, like, and you mentioned Amazon Prime, like you could dig around in those places for hours and find some gems that like, most people overlooked over the last, you know, 20 years. Tubi has the best horror catalog on streaming right now. Maybe next next to Shudder, obviously. Like Shudder, Shudder is curating it and Shudder has the quality hands down. But me and Monica will say it all the time on this podcast. Like mm-hmm. Tubi might as well sponsor this podcast. It has all of the underseen stuff, all the stuff that doesn't get the attention from a Shudder or a Netflix or, you know, the titles that aren't quote unquote important enough. They go to Tubi. And then, like, they're free to watch to everyone. Like, it's so amazing. And, you know, just to comment quickly on the whole theatrical thing, it's like movies made for theater have to be made a certain way to appease certain marketing, to appease certain audience demographics, things of that nature, where an indie is going to take its swings. And if it gets picked up, it gets like, obviously, they're trying to get picked up, but they can take more personal swings and they can take a route like Alien Raiders, where they're doing things their way and they're doing things that again you said the thing meets like assault on precinct 13 in a way or any standoff movie or anything of that nature it's it's a concept that might not have made sense to maybe some like bigger players to make it a studio film but that's only because they have certain check like you know they're checking boxes in a certain way and they have to make it they have to make the movie that's going to make the most money where you know here here's a here's a smaller budget go do your thing we're just going to see how this comes out and yeah, I, I'm always going to gravitate towards the indies. And like, that's why my like end of year list is always like, I'm I'm not trying to go against the norm. I'm not trying to say things that go to theaters or like saturated or something of that nature. But year after year, my end of list is always populated by indies. And, and I think that's because I'm maybe I'm just drawn more to like the spirit of a film than what is just trying to, you know, make make a good amount of money. Well, yeah, Denaro, I, you, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matt. Well, I was gonna I was gonna segue us into our last question, Heather. So I want I want to give you a chance to respond to what Donato said. Oh, well, I was just gonna say I do think we're really lucky in the last few years that it seems like studios, in terms of horror, are kind of getting on the page of like bringing directors in and just kind of letting them do their thing. Um, like something like *Malignant* gives me hope that studios can make weird horror movies because again, when I grew was growing up, like sure, a lot of my favorite movies were coming out of like New World Pictures and things like that, but you know, if you look at a movie like They Live, that doesn't seem like a typical Universal Studios movie, um, particularly in the 80s. It feels, you know, it feels very different. Um, so I think we're really lucky in, the, in that regard 
that we do have studios taking some chances here and there, but I also think they're working with directors who genuinely love the genre for the most part, which is pretty cool. Um, but I will say, I don't know if you guys saw the article today, but there's like somebody wrote an article about like, why are indie movies so weird? And I'm just like, where have you been? Indie movies have always been weird. That's where the cool mm-hmm. shit happens. Like get, you know, catch up with the rest of the class. Um, but yeah, so if, if anything, I like that this has sort of turned into our celebration of what makes independent storytelling so great. And that segues nicely into my last question for both of you, which is that independent storytelling like Alien Raiders, how does it find kind of its second life? You know, obviously we have fans on this podcast, both as a host and a guest uh, and myself as well, that would love for more people to see this movie. But what allows a film like Alien Raiders now um, to kind of have the reach that that would solidify it, perhaps as a cult classic. You know, I and again, I'm I'm somebody who like I get the you know the the importance of physical media. Um, like I said, I pulled out my Alien Raiders DVD, um, even though primarily we just keep our Blu-rays out now because there's just too much stuff in our apartment. But like, so you know, you can't beat the real thing. But I think ultimately, like streaming is really where people where pe- movies find like their second life and fans can start to rediscover them. Like if you look at like a movie like Fade to Black, like when I was a kid, that wasn't a movie that you could easily find even at a video store when it was released. Like it was a tough movie to come across. Um, but once Vinegar Syndrome kind of put together their release for it and, um, you know, and again, you have people who also sort of champion these movies, you know, through word of mouth over the years, like, that's where I, I think these sort of second waves of fandom come into, um, which again is one of these things where like, if people are talking about certain movies online and if I haven't seen them, like I send myself email notes all the time. And then I have a little Google document of like things like, Oh, make sure to look for this or that. And like, like two years ago, I think it was when vinegar syndrome first announced that they, they were pretty sure they were going to be getting fade to black. Like I was like, Oh sweet. And I like, put on my list like you know keep an eye out because I'd always wanted to see you know see that and you know and I think also just like digging like digging through platforms like we we all want to go to Shutter and we'll watch you know the Argento movies or Halloween one four and five are there and I'm guilty of throwing one of those on late night when I'm working but like you can find some real gems in there and I think especially they become a really fantastic showcase for independent uh, storytellers from all over the world over the last few years and there's some really fantastic stuff on there if you're willing to put yourself out there. Like we all love the stuff that we're nostalgic for and that we're comfortable with and things like that. But I think if you kind of, you know, do a little due diligence in terms of these different streaming services, like I think that's the strength of them is that they give these movies a second life. And honestly, I'm really glad to hear Alien Readers is on Prime because I had no idea. Yeah, sorry, it is rentable on Prime. I should say that. I oh, just, yeah. okay, gotcha. My bad, my bad for not for years. It was that. actually on Vudu for a long time. It was on Vudu's free list, and then you know it was one of those like, oh, do I go and dig up my DVD? And I was like, well, let me see if it's still on Vudu. And I was like, oh, it's not. Um, so you know, obviously, physical media is always the best you know possible you know option because you know streaming is you can only hold so many movies, I guess, unless you're Tubi, um, which you know they'll they'll run everything. But, you know, I, I think if you go into streaming, you know, if you go into something like TV and just start poking around, you never know what you're going to find. I actually didn't even realize that they just added the Nightmare on Elm Street movies over there, which I was like, really? Because those were on HBO Max for like months. 
and then I was looking for New Nightmare. Not that I don't have the Blu-rays, but I was like, oh, this is easier because my dogs are asleep. And then I was like, wait, it's not on HBO anymore. What's going on? Um, they also took the original Point Breakaway, and I was very sad. So, but the remake's on there. So just in case anybody wants to torture them, thank God. Oh, you know, I I was like, oh, good. I'm glad that's happening. <laughs> Well, I mean, my answer is going to be actually kind of the same, because as you mentioned before, Heather, there are so many 2000s horror movies now, and I think we're far enough away from their initial release, uh, and they just didn't get the attention they deserved on their initial release. And I think they got caught in the entire stigma of being a VOD um, horror film or a VOD thriller that, sure, whatever, it couldn't make it to theater, so why am I going to watch it? But you start looking at movies that we've talked about on this podcast and like vinegar syndrome or something is putting out some of those 2000 horror movies. Like they're, we're getting the re-releases from shout factory and scream factory. Cause like I own 13 ghosts. I own house on haunted Hill, even though that's 1999. And those are movies I think need to be so rediscovered and readdressed because they are so much better than some will give credit because they're just 2000 horror movies and everyone's written off the 2000s as like a wasteland of horror. Very untrue, like very untrue. And there are so many films and Alien Raiders is one of those films that I think needs to get a solid um, physical release that gets the backing, that gets the fans excited again. All of a sudden it does hit a shutter then um, like some of these movies do because they'll hit physical, they'll get the special edition release, they'll do all of the boutique stuff and then it'll hit shutter. And I think if Alien Raiders goes to Prime, goes to Netflix, it helps, no doubt. It's on a streaming service, people will find it. But Alien Raiders is kind of like something horror fans especially are going to hone in on and appreciate. And they probably have Shudder already. So I do believe that is like, that, that's the kind of the best route uh, to see for Alien Raiders. Because like outside of that, it has been out. It's been available. It's it was it's two ninety nine to rent on Amazon. So it's not all that much money. And you know, I think people are just really hesitant to jump into something like that. So I, I think it's got it's got to get the attention that 80s and 90s films have gotten from the boutique uh, distributors who want to re-release things. And it's time to start hitting those 2000s. And why, why not start with Alien Raiders? Yeah, I mean, we're, we were lucky to get House of Wax. So I feel like right. And exactly. that was so well received. I'm like, let's just open that floodgate and let's let's get, let's keep it going. Hmm. Well, I think. I think there it is. There's a path to cult superstardom for Alien Raiders, uh, provided the distributors and the other folks in the audience uh, that are listening can make it happen. So that is the definitive, that is the final word on all six Rotten Tomato Star reviews of Alien Raiders. Heather, I want to say thank you so much for, for joining us, for making time for us. I know that this is a busy time of year for every film critic, and in particular you. So we really appreciate you stopping by the show. With, you know, festival season starting up really quickly, I'm sure people are going to want to read your reviews and the coverage that you're doing. So where are some good places for people to go and um, follow your writing or learn a little bit more about you online? Oh, gotcha. Um, so I am primarily over at DailyDead.com. Um, we also do a podcast uh, over there called Corpse Club. And um, I usually show up on the episodes with my horror BFF, Patrick Bromley. And then we also do a podcast through his site, F This Movie, uh, called Craven Craven, where we have been doing deep dives into uh, Wes Craven's entire filmography. Um, so that's been super fun. Um, I also do some stuff over at Fangoria.com. And you can also find me over at uh, on Twitter at The Horror Chick. Um, so for in terms of the writing stuff, you can find 
Uh, Monsters Makeup and Effects Volume 1 over at aminkpublishing.com. It's also available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. You can even order it off a of Target I, I just found out a couple weeks ago, which is kind of weird. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's available now. And Volume 2 will be out, I believe, sometime this summer. Donato, what you got, man? It's festival season for you, too. Go ahead and share where people can follow your writing. Oh, we're 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 gonna take a Sundance off. We're, we we had a we had a big year last year. We're gonna we're gonna sit through Sundance and uh, I'll be back at it for South by. But um, you can find me as always at Donato Bomb on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow my writing. You can follow my pictures. You can follow whatever you want. Uh, you can also hit my authory. I have this nice little page on authory.com. Search Matt Donato, and it compiles all of my writing in one easy to find place. Because I don't think you want to sift through slash film Fangoria, bloody disgusting. IGN and everywhere else I write. And as for myself, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Monagle, uh, M-O-N-H-E-L-E. And yeah, please, if you haven't already, or if you're not in the habit of doing so, check out www.certifiedforgotten.com. We are lucky enough to have a lot of really talented and interesting writers who are sharing some unique perspectives on films. We recently had a piece on the village as an allegory for uh, school shooter drills that really kind of really deeply changed how I think about that movie. So um, if you want to know kind of what the best bubbling young horror critics are, I'm biased. I think a lot of them are writing for certifiedforgotten.com right now. So check it out and make up your mind for yourself. And that is it. That is our show. Heather, again, thank you so much. And our future guests, thank you for the uh, new territory and new roads that you pay for us in our review requirements. Well, thank you guys so much for having me again. Really, it's been a pleasure and an honor. And I was so thrilled to do this. So I really do appreciate you uh, giving me a chance to chat about a fun movie and even myself, which is weird, but I appreciate it. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. Donato, you got a plethora of options here. How are you taking us out? Fucking dildo. Uh, traditions. You got to have them.